1: Right. Uh, Good enough by Cindy Lauper there. Caterpillar is what we're going to be going to um, because the numbers that came out were good enough and uh, the stock actually rose. But then they said something that was uh, at least a little bit eyebrow raising. Let's bring in Joe Doe here. He's Bloomberg News, metals and mining reporter. Joe, they talked about how they were hitting the quote high watermark. I was asking just now, did your eyeballs roll into the back of your head when that Came across well when
2: the CFO first said it, I, I almost hesitated. I, I hesitated because it. it I, I thought maybe I missed something. You know, yeah, the, the high water mark of resource industries, or the high water mark of oil and energy, energy which and you know, maybe and there'll be a, a
1: new high water mark, maybe right. <laughs> and and
2: and then uh, the question came back during the analyst Q and A, and one of the analysts really hammered home at this, uh, and that's when you know we just threw out a big headline, and we realized that what they were saying was, listen, the first quarter was far better than we expected and we're not expecting quarters 2 3 and 4 to be as good. Well, quarter 2 is usually one of their if not usually their best quarter. Mm. So that's when analysts started kind of digging in further uh and later on in the call there was an analyst who again asked and the CEO said listen listen we're not saying we're at a peak here in the economic cycle. We're just pointing out that the margins are not going to be as good as they were in, as in the first quarter. Mm, so what's the pessimism here? What are the reasons? Well, they are saying that the – follow so steel costs are a big part of the cost that they incur. Obviously, they're making steel machinery, right? So that follow-through of the rise in steel prices that we have seen going on at the end of last year and this year hasn't completely followed through onto the balance sheet for Caterpillar. They're still mm. paying for earlier mm-hmm. prices that were coming in before the tariffs were announced, right? right? So they were also getting big sales. So that's that's right there where you're talking about – the margins, So they had lower costs than they're expecting later on this year, and sales were pretty darn good. And, and and so that's the other thing, right? This this was a very good earnings report. They're still reporting growth. They're still saying margins will continue to expand in quarters two, three, and four, help, just not as much as one can. Help
0: me out here because we had this conversation earlier with uh, Dave Wilson, uh, also follows the, the equity markets, and said that this shouldn't have been a surprise to analysts, that they were kind of anticipating – that maybe this was as good as it gets
2: right and, and so what happened so i i think i think you're right right everybody can just factor in the costs right costs are rising they can also factor in there's a little bit of a lag on on the price i think when people actually heard this kind of high watermark they Still expected spring selling season to be pretty darn good. Again, we go back to the point of 2Q. Historically, it's very good for Caterpillar. But when they said 2Q is not going to be as good as, as 1Q, they didn't say that specifically. They said 2, 3, and 4 won't be as good as 1. I think that's what took them off guard.
0: Is part of it too, Joe, I mean, I've you know spent some, some time with them over the years. Mm. I mean, th- this is a company that works around the globe, so people are very interested in what they have to say. They've got their own in-house economists. So right. you really want to hear what they have to say about the global economy. But for many years they had a lot of troubles. They made some big investments. Buceris spent billions, you know, building up expected it to be a good thing and then it really weighed on the company. So are we just we get a little nervous if there's any inkling of something going wrong again.
2: Right. It's just like anytime we get a slightly off economic indicator. Right. It's treated very similarly. If there's just some warning that's a bit off or gives people a little bit of hesitation you know they take a step back and another reason they do that is because Caterpillar has consistently been upping their outlook and mm. people have been so bullish on the stock and it's almost like it got to the point where they were looking for just something to sell off for the moment take and take the air and, out a little bit right take the air out and and you know listen this is all forward looking the stock moves based on forward looking outlook and when they're saying the rest of this year won't
1: be as great as the first quarter looked. Well, that right there tells you maybe why people take a sell-off. Joe, I'm looking at the analyst's recommendation function right now for Caterpillar. Uh, it's 18 buys, two sells. Several analysts just raised their ratings on the yeah. stock. Should we expect that uh, folks are going to weigh in and say, hold on, wait a minute? Maybe, but I, I was talking to an
2: analyst uh, earlier this afternoon who said, listen, we we know the margins point. That they made that we have been talking about this whole time here, but he said you also got to remember that they are still saying there's going to be growth, and th- and they're not telling us that we're at a peak. And if anything, they're telling us right now we're somewhere early or mid cycle, but not towards the the tail end of that cycle. So keep that in mind when you're seeing a sell off. And listen, the Dow's out uh, quite a number of points as well. Um, so everything seems to be getting hit. Maybe not just Caterpillar.
0: I mean their business model. I mean. Does it make sense now? Again, I go back to those investments that they made in mining and that exposure. Many people thought, wow, they're way ahead of the curve, and maybe they were just too way ahead of the curve.
2: (laughs) Right. They they got a little bit ahead of the curve, absolutely. They had all that expanded capacity, but now the analysts are actually kind of... It's thinking that's not a bad thing, right, as they have to ramp back up. I was talking to another analyst yesterday who said, listen, they've got the capacity there. They just have to deliver on product. That's what a lot of people were worried about with Caterpillar moving into this earnings report was right. are they actually able to deliver the backlog that all the dealers have to make sure consumers get what they need in this upcycle?
0: Because that backlog is so big.
2: Because that backlog wow. is so big. The capacity is finally there, right? I mean, that's from years ago. Right? They're just, you know, the worry was that they're waiting on their their suppliers to actually get it to them, um, which they actually said, okay, sure. The backlog's still large, but yeah.
0: So, do you think investors have it wrong?
2: I don't know if they have it wrong, based as
0: you you look at the quarter.
2: I mean, you look at the stock; it's up so much lately. I mean, sure, it's a, it's a really bad day, but you know, when you kind of take things into context, I mean, this is a stock that sometimes oftentimes whipsaws on earnings day Um, and it might take a little time
1: for people to kind of figure things out and see where we go you know joe how long do you think this might last if you look into your crystal ball here because the imf says Mm. that for the next few years 3.9 percent global growth but then pessimism is going to weigh right it is but they they continue to say listen
2: you know, and it was obvious during the call that they knew something was up, right? They said, "Listen, we think there will be continuing strength in China. That's a big mm-hmm. deal. One of our strongest markets right now is North America. That's staying there. Latin America, which had been our worst market, yeah. has actually come off the bottom, and we're finally seeing a little bit of air come into that economy, to it's, that to that sector. It's so,
0: like what you wanted to hear from Caterpillar want for so hear, long, yeah. Joe Doe. Thank you so much over at Bloomberg News, our metals and mining reporter. This is Bloomberg Radio." Yes, indeed. We're talking about those small cap names. Little change this year, up about a percent. Not great, but compare that with a one and a half percent drop in the S&P 500. Let's talk about some small cap opportunities. Back with us, George Young, partner co-portfolio manager at Villary Funds, $2.1 billion in assets under management overall. His Villary Balanced Fund, by the way, uh, invests in small caps, and it's beating just about all of its peers so far this year. He's based in New Orleans. Did I say it right? Yes. That's New great. Orleans? New Orleans. New Orleans. Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. Um, it's an interesting market environment, lots of move, uh, moves. How much are you guys changing your portfolio at all? Remind us about the strategy sure. and how long you We're might really stay something. We're really not changing
3: our, our portfolio strategy. Again, the important thing is I've been doing this since 1986. Uh, this firm was founded by my great-grandfather in 1911. So, I wouldn't say nothing has changed, but generally speaking, if you're investing in the stock market properly, it's like watching the grass grow. So if a stock goes from 10 to 11 in the course of a year, that doesn't seem like much, but that's 10 percent right there, and everybody would take 10 percent nowadays. That's a great lesson, correct? Yes, I think so.
0: Because it's very easy to kind of get crazy and irrational and emotional Mm -hmm. over big moves, especially in a volatile market, which is more normal. Right. That
3: is correct. But you have to
0: know your companies and and potentially stay the course.
3: Well, that's true. That's one point. The other is, uh, you know, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, are taxable investors. And if you try to change horses in the middle of the stream, you get confounded with taxes, and often short term taxes, which I think everybody knows that's taxed at a higher rate than long term gains. So if you think of it more as investment, not gambling, and you think Mm -hmm. of as a long term, long term, Uh, investment. I think that's a huge difference. It's very important. George, in terms of the rationality right now
1: happening on the markets, especially with the 10-year hitting the 3%, what
3: is your take on that? What would you advise? Uh, I think the 10-year at 3% is really kind of a psychological barrier. Again, that's still 3%. It's not 5%, 6%, 8%. As I said, I've been doing this for 30 years, so I've seen the high interest rates that we used to have. 3% on the 10-year means that can still be stimulating to the economy. And then also remember that as interest rates move up, that's really an affirmation of a powerful economy. It means that things are going well. God feared that we would have deflation. We had 1% interest rate. So 3% might be a little tough to swallow on the short-term basis, but long-term, that's good for banks. That's good for financial, sen- financially sensitive stocks, insurance mm. companies, and such.
0: And it is a sign that things are getting better in terms yeah. of the economy. This sure. is what we all kind of want to see.
3: I agree 100%.
0: So talk to us about names. I love when you sure. come in, and I love talking names. Um, let's get to some of them, because you are interested, and in, you're investing in um, Axon. Yes. Formerly Taser.
3: Correct. Formally, taser. Sell a a lot, lot of people
0: ta- sell a lot of tasers.
3: <laughs> they sell a lot of tasers. But here's the important thing: is that is what people know them for the non-lethal weapons. But the body-worn cameras is what the real deal is. So it's interesting because they had a relationship already because of the taser product. Mm-hmm. Body-worn cameras post Ferguson, Missouri, et cetera, are very important. What did happen in a particular event? Who's right? Who's wrong? You can't get all the evidence, but you can a, a lot of it. What Taser now Axon has done is they used to um, go to bid for the cameras themselves, and the storage was kind of an add-on item. You've got to store the data once you get it some right. sort of way, and that's pretty expensive to do. So what they now do is they said, let's just give away these cameras, and let's bid it on the data itself. So they already had it in with law enforcement uh-huh. agencies via the, the Taser product. They now said, let's do away with the problems. Let's make this easy for you and for us. So they're winning the contracts left and right. So
0: wait, they're doing data management? Correct, But they're not offering the actual cloud or whatever it is, are they? They
3: offer the whole storage, everything. Now, they have to train law enforcement individuals to use it correctly because, obviously, as we all know with technology nowadays, it's not as simple as just flipping a switch. Right. You have to maintain it properly. And there's subtleties they have to do. For instance, they need to um, um, redact uh, 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 identities of minors, for instance. License plates, you've probably seen they redact those because you've got a, a privacy issue there sometimes. So, it, 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 it's, it's full fulfillment of the data and full management of the data, mm. but by the same token, there are certain principles that need to be followed that are not that easy to do. Yes. But that's where the money's made. It's kind of the razor-razor blade analogy. Got it.
1: Yep. It's so interesting that the move to the cloud isn't just the obvious tech companies, the global ones out there, but also Axon. One other company that is interesting, and also with the tech sphere, is Progressive, and I note that it's because of an
3: increase in distracted driving. Obviously, more focused on their phones. Yes, that's kind of a euphemism, distracted driving. But it used to be the drunk driving. But I think the stats will show you that texting while driving is more dangerous than driving drunk, which is crazy. But on the other hand, think of the number of times you've been driving down the road and you look at the car next to you, if you're the passenger, and you can see somebody – driving and texting. It happens all the time. So the point is that uh, I think you probably know Progressive, your listeners know Progressive. Um, they direct marketers. They've got a more efficient combined ratio, which is the way you measure expenses in the insurance world. And also what they've done is you know them as a car insurer. They're now bundling, makes sense. Yeah. Again, yeah. not, not unlike the Axon slash Taser, they have a relationship and they're leveraging that from only um, automobile to home also.
0: Stock's up about 7% this year. George Young, nice to check with you. Thank you. Have a good trip home. Partner, co-portfolio manager at Villery Funds, $2.1 billion in assets under managed, based in New Orleans, in our New York studio. There is always so on Yes, indeed. So much oil in the ground. A lot of folks going after all that oil. And for generations of investors, ExxonMobil has been a cornerstone of fund managers' portfolios alongside the biggest names in corporate America. Not so much anymore. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the oil and the commodity market. Dan Heckman back here on Bloomberg Radio, national investment consultant at U.S. Bank Wealth Management, $150 billion in assets under total management. Dan joining Remy and me on the phone from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Dan, uh, energy market Markets, oil. We've seen a little bit of a different trade trend as of late. Where do you think things are going?
4: Well, we think with some occasional pullbacks, uh, the the trend is still upward, Carol. Uh, You know, we are seeing a little bit of a pullback off of discussion about uh, perhaps France and the U.S. uh, keeping intact the Iran uh, uh, nuclear uh, deal. Uh, And so that's created a little bit of a sell-off here. But frankly, we think longer term, as long as the world economy, which we believe it will, uh, continues to hit on all cylinders, uh, frankly, uh, oil demand and uh, oil consumption is going to continue to trend upward.
1: Now, Dan, looking at the dollar, of course, we have to talk about the interactions with that and commodities and specifically oil. The dollar is, what, uh, weaker by about 12 percent ever since the 2016-2017 time frame. Uh, Correct. uh, You know, you're talking about stronger dollar here putting a a short-term lid on energy prices, especially with interest rates
4: well we had we had a stronger dollar yesterday uh, today we have a weaker dollar <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know it's having a positive impact for gold. but in some of the other commodities such as oil uh the uh, announcement out of the White House today is overriding uh, uh that uh, connection and uh, but uh that's another reason why uh, I think we're optimistic cautiously optimistic about the energy markets is that the dollar has been in a downtrend uh Once again, we think there'll be some um, respites to that, if you may, as rates move higher uh, and will help prop up the dollar. But longer term, uh, we see some challenges with our own currency, uh, thanks to a rising deficit, unfortunately, and some other uh, fiscal issues uh, that's flooding the marketplace with dollars, U.S. dollars. Um, So... um, I think that's put a very, I appreciate the point you brought up about the weak dollars, to I think a major factor of why we've seen across the board, outside of agricultural uh, commodities, uh, commodity markets in general, have been very strong, very good performers in 2018.
0: So, Dan, is there a net-net here when it comes to oil specific specifically, maybe how to play it as an investment here? Because I do think about kind of the supply that continues to come onto the market, you know, also uh, competition when it comes to petroleum-based vehicles. We have a lot more EVs coming on, renewable energies. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, what's the net-net takeaway for investors looking at the oil space, the energy space here?
4: Good question, Carol. We think there's a number of ways to differ, uh, play it. We don't get into individual specific names, as you know. But from a sector standpoint, uh, XLE uh, is a well-known exchange-traded fund uh, that uh, is uh, benefited by uh, oil companies and, and represents that sector. Uh, we think uh, there's been a true disconnect. There's this belief that energy, oil commodities are going to uh, go away in the next five to 10 years. We think it has a longer tail run than that. Uh, the, the conversion to alternative uh, energy uh, sources uh, is certainly in play, but not going to take the amount of market share needed to continue to uh, power the world, if you may. So we think uh, the energy sector looks attractive. There's too big of a disconnect between valuations in the sector versus fundamentals. And we think investors are now starting to recognize that and we're starting to see fund flows into MLPs, Master Limit Partnership, or pipelines, if you may, and other parts of the energy sector. Some of the uh, laggards include uh, the drillers like... Uh Uh, you know, uh, and other uh, exploration type uh, of entities. Uh, But we think they'll eventually catch up here from a performance standpoint. But many of the large cap names uh, to us look extremely cheap here and provide some dividend uh, streams that are also beneficial from a total return standpoint.
1: Dan, that's really interesting that you bring up about the explorers and the drillers. I'm just looking at the uh, Baker Hughes rig count right now. Ever since the start of this year, it's up by about 10 percent, 747 now at 820. Where do you expect that to go, especially as you just mentioned, the pressure on drillers?
4: Well, I think the rig count in the near term, it's always tough to gauge, but I I, I think this is probably about as good as it's going to get. Uh, But, um, you know, in the shell area and those plays, what happens is uh, those wells typically uh, decrease in production uh, more rapidly. Uh, And so uh, we think drillers eventually, again, there's a disconnect here, uh, but we think eventually the market's going to catch up with that. Uh, And one reason why we think that's another attractive play. But uh, again, I think there's a big thought process out that's overriding a lot of the the, uh, hindrance, if you may, in performance is that this is not long-lasting, this is not Mm long-term, and we just happen to think it's a little more sustainable at this juncture.
0: Hey, Dan, I'm curious about the big oil guys who are going to be reporting, uh, so we'll start to get results here. Um, We should anticipate some good news over the move up in in energy prices, Mm -hmm. but if we start to hear the big oils taking that money and rather than maybe boosting dividends and things like that, putting it back into CapEx, is that problematic uh, in your view? Just got about 30 seconds.
4: No, I don't think so. I I think there's a need for uh, reinvestment. And uh, from a long-term shareholder standpoint, uh, if there's a healthy mix between dividends and stock repurchases and uh, CapEx, I think the markets will greet that. Investors will greet that positively, Carol.
0: All right. Interesting. So we'll watch and we'll we'll get some more in terms of uh, the numbers from the big oil uh, community. Dan Heckman, thank you so much. National Investment Consultant at U.S. Bank Wealth Management. $150 billion in assets under total management. Dan joining us once again on the phone from Kansas City, Missouri. Quick check on the markets, everybody. You've got the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 520 points. We're talking about a 2.1% decline, 1.6% lower on the S&P, and the NASDAQ down This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, uh, let's head on over to Facebook now because... uh They're still in the news, and that's in part thanks to our own projects and investigations reporter, Ben Elgin. He joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Ben, great to have you. Your uh, uh, news story right now is titled Facebook's Battle Against Fake News Notches, an Uneven Scorecard. Trying to fight the good fight here. Tell us more about the unevenness of this uh, so-called scorecard.
5: Yeah, we're 17 months now into the company's efforts to curtail uh, the fake news, which was so prevalent on its platform during the 2016 election and, and thereafter. Um, and, and, you know, there are a few sites that are notorious purveyors of misinformation that have seen traffic plummet, and they, and a couple of them have, have actually shut down. Uh, but what we found, we looked at about uh, the Facebook engagements at about 15 websites known for uh, really kind of trafficking and trafficking in, in misinformation. And what we found were, yes, a couple have indeed plummeted sharply, but a handful of others um, have continued to do actually quite well. And viral hits that they put out continue to get shared hundreds of thousands of times. So, time. so it's really sort of a mixed bag for the company so far.
0: So based on your story and based on listening to Mark Zuckerberg uh, talk to uh, lawmakers a, a few weeks ago about what they plan to do, um, is their approach make sense? Are they they not doing enough? What's, what's the kind of takeaway here?
5: Yeah, so they – I mean they are really adamant that they don't want to be the arbiters of truth. They don't want to be the ones who have to go in and figure out, Okay, yeah, this is just sort of highly opinionated versus it crosses the line into falsehoods, right? They don't want to be staffing up and doing all of that stuff. And so what they're trying to do – and it does make sense. I mean they're trying to say, look – Uh, For websites that continuously get flagged as being uh, uh, putting out false stories by these third-party fact-checkers who they work with, entities like PolitiFact and Snopes, Um, those that are repeatedly dinged by these fact-checkers will um, see their uh, ability to be shared um, around the platform diminished. And and we are actually seeing that occurring. Uh, We're seeing that occur at at a number of different sites. So it, it does make sense. Um, all of that said, the fact-checking prowess and the personnel work, personnel working on this—I mean—they're just dramatically underhanded, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, there, there's thousands of stories being shared, um, you know, every hour, right? And, and so you've got a handful of fact-check organizations, um, you know, who, who who are pretty understaffed. I mean, how can they keep up with this flow of information? And- is it
0: a needle in a haystack? I mean, is that what it's really like, or is it whack-a-mole, as everybody says, <laughs>
5: that as soon as you knock out one, another one comes back up? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and it could take, you know, a day or two before um, a couple of different fact check organizations have flagged an article and, and then Facebook now knows, OK, yeah, this is deemed to be highly disre- disreputable. Um, and by then, you know, it's already been shared a few th- hundred thousand times. Mm. That said, Facebook's response is that, OK, we're going to learn from that. We're going to say this site, you know, we've dinged them multiple times now. We're going to have to start clamping down on Uh, their ability to show up in in people's uh, Facebook news feeds. So it makes sense. It's just, you know, I think it's got a ways to go in terms of of the execution on it.
1: Now, Ben, I think you make a really great point here in that bias does cut both ways. When we think about uh, uh, the stuff on our news feed, a lot of it might be deemed as conservative. But you point out that there are liberal organizations, liberal sites that are also just as hyper-partisan that are being cracked down on.
5: Yeah, I mean, the one site we mentioned in the story is, is Politicus USA. And, uh, you know, they, they've I mean, they just had a piece out a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, Trump wanted to amend the Constitution so he could extend his presidency to four terms. I mean, that's a falsehood. Um, you know, that's a site that uh, their, their Facebook engagements have gone down by about 80 uh, percent uh, since last summer. So, yeah, indeed, the, the crackdown has cut both ways, even though there's been a lot of, uh, of charges of bias against the company so far.
0: Yeah, I, it just makes me wonder, you know, how someone like Facebook or other folks online are going to, going to really be able to police the fake content. It just it's it's not like it's a you know black and white model necessarily you know necessarily mm-hmm. Ben. I mean, I don't know. As a journalist, I think I know what's a black and white right. model, but you know what I mean.
5: Yeah, absolutely, um, and and there's so much at stake. Mm. If you look at, I mean, the New York Times had a great piece over the weekend looking at what had happened in Sri Lanka, right? And and where Facebook does not have lo, enough local language fact checkers, uh, you know, people who can moderate and look at, at look at the the misinformation going around there, and in places like that, I mean, it's led to violence uh, and clashes, um, and so it, it's just really important that. Um, They do more to address this. And I think they know that. Um, But now it's just about executing it and and just doing a better job with it. Ben, what are we
1: looking ahead to in terms of regulation? The R word always comes up. I mean, I'm seeing in your story. uh, One editor in chief said that it's about free speech, free speech. There's an argument for that.
5: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Free speech for sure. And, um, you know, and, and, and Facebook does not want to cross that line. You know, and yeah. they're, they're they're very, very sensitive to it. But, yep. you know, at a certain point, you know, you get this information flowing around uh, it, to a certain extent. Something has to be done to curtail it. Ben Elgin of
0: Bloomberg News. Thank you so much. This is Bloomberg Radio.
5: I'm
0: All right, everybody, it is time for the drive to the close. Sorry, <laughs> this is what I'm go- – uh, too many balls in the air. Uh, back with us is Jim Lowell, Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments, over $5 billion in assets overall under management. Jim, based in Newton, Massachusetts, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here in person.
6: Oh, it is great to be here in person.
0: Really great. Hey, listen, how do you make sense of a market like today where we see a bunch of selling? We're just off our lows, but still down more than 1.4% uh, on the S&P, 1.8% down on the Dow normal volatility or what?
6: I think what we're seeing is a market that had priced in expectations for a very good round of earnings reports. It's already got that in some of the most significant bellwethers. So it is now, I think, pricing in, having bought on the rumor, a little bit of selling on the news. I don't think it's indicative of anything other than the kind of volatility we're just going to have to continue to live with. Uh, We've been living with it so far throughout this year. Uh, It comes and goes. On days when fear has the upper hand, if I am a long-term investor, which I am, I am looking for uh, the ability to add to my best ideas at discounted prices or new ideas at discounted prices, something, frankly, I really struggled to be able to do in 2017.
0: Right. Stuff's on sale all of a sudden.
6: Yes, it is. But in it comes cases. and goes. It, it is a fire sale day. It's a flash day, sale. <laughs> that's right. And then it is a melt up the next. So yeah. it's a, it is absolutely an unnerving time to be an investor, but it is one of those classic times where you want to be one.
1: Jim, earlier we were talking about the fear versus the fundamental trade here. Looking at the VIX, as you just mentioned, it's up on the 18 handle. No surprise, obviously, with this risk-off environment. But uh, looking ahead, the phrase that's popping in my head is new normal for volatility. In terms of how much higher do you think we might go here?
6: Oh, I suspect volatility will continue to spike to uh, higher highs as we wend our way through the midterm election. Uh, there are so many issues to be concerned about, whether it's Iran, whether it's Russia – whether it's domestic politics or geopolitics, let alone the unknown factor of some impingement that typically takes the legs out from underneath a market. Uh, There's plenty to be worried about and plenty for volatility to feed on. But again, I would come back to the fact that so long as fundamentals, earnings, interest rates, economic data suggest domestic and global expansion – I think you take advantage of uh, buying on the dips. Right.
1: And for this uh, quarter, uh, a lot of people are saying that they're expecting when this is all said and done that the quarter is supposed to be really good for earnings. For example, financials, although they didn't perform in terms of the share price, the numbers were good.
6: The numbers were excellent. uh, And the market anticipated that they were going to be excellent. So now we hit that. That lull. And and then we get into the summer doldrums, which and volatility, uh, at least in my sort of behavioral analysis, loves the kind of vacuum that it's about to be given. So I would, again, steel yourselves for more, not less volatility. But uh, by year end, do I expect to uh, have gains on the table to show for the fundamentals? I think so, at least so far.
0: Jim, what are the bellwethers, what are the fundamentals that you focus on, whether it's the Mm -hmm. financial sectors, consumer discretionary, consumer staples, transports? What is it that tells you that maybe gives you a little bit of a a
6: view into what's to come? So that is an excellent question, and I would say you mentioned three. So anything to do with the U.S. consumer or the global consumer, uh, both discretionary and staples, and then the financials. The The financial sector basically reflects the health not just of our overall financial system, but the underlying consumers, whether it's businesses or individuals who are borrowing to spend, which they do not do unless they're feeling uh, very optimistic about their ability to repay whatever it is they're borrowing. So we definitely pay attention to those two sectors. Technology, too, you can't ignore. It is the inevitable growth driver, not just of our economy, but really the global markets over a long time span. That said, uh, they've had an awfully good run.
0: Does it bother you that they are a bigger part of our market environment? Do we worry about that? Or this is the world we live in. I mean, everybody on a daily basis, either Facebook's touching them, Google's touching them, Apple's touching them, for the most part.
6: I think uh, technology is, it's not just you ubiquitous. It's basically now part of our DNA and part of the market's DNA. It's going to remain a significant factor in terms of how our markets behave, uh, as will uh, inside of the healthcare sector biotechnology. It lends volatility to that typical risk-adjusted return space in a way that we really haven't seen uh, in prior decades. So it is something that we have to learn to live with and learn to invest through. Mm. Now, Jim, this
1: week about 700 companies are reporting their earnings. Which ones are you looking at specifically that will indicate this kind of health that we want to see or that we're afraid of not seeing
6: so uh, i I'd, I'd love to see the uh, battleship uh, balance sheet blue chips the bellwethers uh, so we've s- certainly seen already some today like caterpillar mm-hmm. but i like to do well well it did well it did and well three words, words. Yeah. three words yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but what i love to do is go a bit off road i like i like things like carly davidson Polaris, blue-collar bling, if you have the second biggest investment that you make, you know, parking your $40,000 motorcycle in, next to your double-wide, you are a confident and employed U.S. consumer.
0: Harley-Davidson's down 17%. They've been having some troubles. They have
6: been having troubles. They've been having troubles because of the fact that the products that they make are hugely expensive relative to competitors.
0: But you like it.
6: But I, I like it as a I mean, read on the consumer. Oh, and if, okay. you look at the, uh, if you look at the way the U.S. Uh, consumer has been buying Harley-Davidson products this quarter, it, it's reasonably indicative of a uh, bullish consumer.
1: Hmm. Looking ahead to a lot of eco-data that we have uh, later this week, what are you looking to to hang your hat on?
6: So I think we've already seen the ones that matter most to me, new right. and existing home sales. Uh, at exorbitantly uh, high prices, no matter where you look pretty much across the country, uh, consumers are willing to step up and purchase at, uh, at, at high prices the biggest investment that they tend to make in their lifetime. I think that reflects uh, not just bullishness, but the ability and also the health of our overall financial system. Uh, going forward, uh, we enter into another lull of both economic data and sort of post-earnings uh, Q1 roundup, that's going to be a dusty state where I think you will see volatility swirling.
0: And then we'll get another jobs report and we'll see if people like where that's going uh, on, right? Because it yep. ultimately is, is about jobs too. Jim Lowell, nice to have you here.
6: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: Pleasure. Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments, over $5 billion in assets under management based in Newton in our New York studio, as I mentioned. Folks, we've got the closing bell just moments away right here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.